Welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast, Punk Part 2. I am Adam Duritz. I'm James Campion. We're going to call this Underwater Punkcast. We have already covered half the decade, well, more. We started this whole journey last week, last podcast, with, um, night. we started in 1967, so we went a decade to 1976, started with the Velvets, and ended up with the band we're going to kick off this uh, foray. Uh, the Ramones with their very first record, which um, you rightly pointed out in the last podcast, really was where this whole thing became global, really, in every other way. There's no other. Uh, I mean, the Ramones' first record is as seminal as I mentioned, the uh, first RCA Elvis Presley, the f- first Beatle recordings, anything you want to think of in the history of rock music, this falls in that category. And um, so we're going to we're going to plow our way through the rest of the 70s now. I just want to bring up one more thing because I read a great quote about this song we're going to play. Uh, I think it's from Johnny Ramone or Joey Ramone uh, where he said uh, we were just trying to think of how to make a hit and uh, the Bay City Rollers had a chant in their song and we wanted to chant in ours S-A-T-U-I do you remember that? Night S-A-T-U-I-D-A-Y Night which in the hands of the of the Ramones becomes Hey Ho Let's Go 1976 the first song on the Ramones Blitzkrieg Bob There's a few things that should be said. I, I saw the Ramones in the early 80s at Lemoore's Rock Club in Brooklyn, and I didn't, and I'm not joking, I could not hear anything for about two days after. Forget about the drive home. The drive home, there was just a ringing. That doesn't do justice to the unbelievable assault of the Ramones doing that song or any song. They, I think they played about 30 songs in about 14 minutes. 
that night. Um, <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> there was no talking. One, two, three, one, two, three, and that's all I heard for the next week. But I, a couple of things. That's a very poppy song. Uh, Adam and I were talking while, while it was playing about how it reflects what he was saying in the last podcast, which I think is kind of the – this is the foundation of the Green Day or the 90s sort of return to punk music. Not the grunge, but the, the, the punky poppy na-na-na-na-na-na and, and Blitzkrieg bop, which is a combination we were talking about before, which is the whole – not embrace, but the whole playing with the whole fascist movement uh, and the idea of the Blitzkrieg and then a bop which I love. They're making a dance out of it. And I'm always reminded of At the Hop by Danny and the Juniors, which gets back to the 50s things, that whole thing, let's go to the hop. Oh, baby, let's go to, oh, baby. That's a, they're playing with hop and bop. So they're combining a lot of things, a new age kind of way to do it with this very traditional 1950s rock and roll style, which you said, the riffs, the melody, it's a poppy, poppy record, much like the Sex Pistols, which you've pointed out in previous podcasts, the EMI, original EMI, uh, uh, never mind the Bullocks, it's very, very polished pop rock music that has a certain, well, for them, an ethos, and for the, for the uh, Ramones, a certain street credibility. So a lot of things happen when a movement explodes like this. You know, like we've talked about, you know, people take up instruments that have never played instruments before, because especially with punk, they think, well, I can do this too. You know, people who are poets become songwriters and play music. But one of the other things is that people leave the bands they're in and join new bands to play punk music. But one of the other things is that uh, bands who are playing a kind of music, and this happens all over the world, this, it starts to happen right here, really. Um, although, no, you can see it in the case of Death, you know, who is a, a Motown, they're playing in all these funk bands around Detroit, and they hear the MC5, they hear the Stooges, they hear Alice Cooper, and they become that band Death. We started off the first podcast with last week, and... Uh, this happens a lot now. A lot of bands that were already established bands playing certain kinds of music. In England, the pub rock movement is a big thing in the 70s. A lot of the bands that have come out of the sort of the country rock scene, there's Brinsley Schwartz, uh, and out of Britain, they, you know, they become a great pub rock band. Out of sure. them comes Nick Lowe. Well, that's where uh, Joe Strummer came from. Right. Well, Joe Strummer was in one another one called the, the 101ers, I think. Yeah. Yep. Um, but uh, this is a band, Eddie and the Hot Rods, great pub rock band who get so turned on by the, the the speed and the excitement of the punk movement, but they still write great songs. And uh, they're only around for a little while there, but I want, I want to play you the song, Eddie and the Hot Rods, 1976, Do Anything You Want to Do. Now, is there anything more 1950s than Eddie and the Hot Rods? Think about it. No, and uh, but this is, this is, they like the speed of punk, they like the guitars of punk, and they bring to it, uh, you know, a pub rock songwriting uh, ethos and skill and they're pretty pretty fucking awesome I love I love this song Tell them what you are gonna do 
So that's Eddie and the Hot Rods. I mean, they're they're a, a pub rock band in England that gets turned on to punk music and suddenly explodes out with that song, which is just, I mean, that's such a great song. And this happened all over. Another one is uh, out in San Francisco, there's a soul, a real soul rock band. They decide on the name Mink DeVille because they're trying to think, what's a totally cool name? What could be better than like a fur-lined uh, Cadillac or a fur-lined, you know, like, so they name themselves Mink DeVille and the, the singer changes his name to Willie DeVille. And uh, they're out in San Francisco when the punk thing happens, and they completely dig it. They come to New York. They uh, immediately get a, you know, become they go straight to the Bowery, and they become a house band at CBGB's. Uh, and, you know, they look completely different from the other punks. Willie DeVille, they're, they're really well-dressed, maybe snakeskin stuff. Willie DeVille has got this huge pompadour on his head and a pencil mustache. Uh, and they don't look like what we think of as punks. They don't look like the television guys in their sort of geek geek chic when they don't look like you know Richard Hell or the Ramones in their like uh, they don't look at Richard Hell with the torn shirts and they don't look like the Ramones in the, the leather jackets but they still somehow fit right in well that's the cool thing about CBGB's uh, gormandizers uh, anybody who dug music uh, who could really turn on um, Hilly who ran the joint um, that's Hilly Crystal yeah Hilly Crystal sorry that he, it, he they could get in Talking Heads has really no musical connection to the Ramones or Television or Suicide or any of the bands or Mink DeVille. Mink DeVille has a different look, but they have more musical uh, connection to the bands I mentioned there. But then you have Blondie, which is a pop rock band that came out of there well. And you could make the argument that Blondie, as, as far as radio hits, had the biggest hits or had the biggest career that came out of the CBGB's movement. There wasn't any one specific thing. It's known for punk, but, but CBGB's had a very wide array of kind of music that came out of there. And Mink DeVille is one of those ones that they would embrace. I believe. Well, I think, you know, so is Blondie. I mean, as, as I, I think it's the thing that Punk Magazine, which is the, the fanzine uh, that came out around that time. Right. Who, who, who they claim they're the ones who coined punk. Punk. Well, they also, uh, Debbie Harry is in every single issue of Punk Magazine oh, that ever wow. came, that she was ever printed. Pin- oh, yeah. You know, they, 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 there's many, many circus magazines. With they knew where their punk her. was buttered, so to speak. I, 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 kept, I kept many of my Deborah Have pictures from Circus and Cream magazine. Yes, absolutely. And uh, who I believe Lou Reed was on the very first cover of Punk Magazine. I have a retrospective of, of one of those coffee table books uh, of uh, the Punk Magazine. And uh, those guys really were on the cutting edge. But anyway, I don't, I don't mean to – you're going to play some – Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, the kind Mink of – the point I wanted to make with both uh, Eddie and the Hot Rods and uh, Mink DeVille is that like – by 1976, it's not just a Bowery thing anymore. You know, it's not just a New York thing. It's global. It's gone all over the place, and it's having all kinds of different effects. You know, the the music that began as punk, all kinds of different bands for all kinds of different reasons are turning to this music and making their own versions of it and fitting in in different ways. They're 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 glomming onto different portions of the ideas that are behind there, but they're all being embraced. You know. Well, still on the Bowery, but it's about to be everywhere. Sure, um, and there's there's the, there's that thread link, I believe, between uh, Eddie and the Hot Rods there, and what we find out later, which was later on, kind of I don't even know who came up with New Wave, but you know where Elvis Costello comes out of, and um, and Joe Jackson, and I'm trying to think of the other ones that came out of it in England that were, were considered New Wave. Graham Parker, right? Graham Parker, right? What right. all Graham Parker grows out of a pub the rock rumor. band, but I mean a lot of these bands in a way the. New wave is a term that was coined by the record companies in a way as a way to like – because, you know – They didn't want to be affiliated with a lot of – They don't want to be called punk. 
Right. And they wanted to sell records. Now, Elvis Costello is just as angry and as, you know, driven on the, especially by the second record where he's second not playing record. with Clover anymore right. as any of these bands. And so is Joe Jackson on Look Sharp and, you know, uh, I'm the Man. You know, he's, those are, but they want to be able to put out these records. They don't want to call it punk. Right. They call it New Wave, but, you know, uh, later on someone says, well, maybe it's because of the synthesizers, but it doesn't have anything to do with that. No, so it was, no. New Wave was a term that was coined as a way of, like, you know, being able to sell punk music without someone saying, no, you can't play in our club. Right. And before you start yelling at your, 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 uh, your, um, your computers or your phones, as I always say, when we do these, Joe Jackson was famously covered by Anthrax. And that first record really hit us all right in the solar plexus. I know the big hit off of that is, um, you know, is she really, really going, out, going with out with him. But the rest of that record kicks ass. And it has an anger and a street uh, credibility that I think anything that came from that movement uh, comes from. But that. Well, look sharp, my aim is true. They're all seventy-seven too, and they are pissed about stuff. You know, uh, yes. you know, the it, economy but it doesn't matter. and the youth and all that stuff in England. Nobody even can get a punk job. in a way is just a name someone coined, maybe not to sell records, but to set themselves apart from something else. It's all music. Sure, these you know whether it's punk or new wave, you're, you're just sticking a name on something because you want to own it in right. your own way somehow. You know whether you're a musician or just a writer or a promoter or a record company guy, you're just trying to find a way to you know lump it all together and make sure. sense of it, Define which it. is only semi-pointless, but good for podcasting, yeah, honestly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, anyways, right. this, is a, this is a San Francisco soul band that came east, became a house band at uh, CBGB's, and became punk, or is punk, whatever. This is a Let Me Dream If I Want To, Amphetamine Blues by Mink DeVille. the door deep surprise it's a vision my breath and rhythm sink a hollow slash a court ah but who's that calling my name over 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 again I say let me dream if I want to let me dream if I want to let me dream if I want to
Yeah, that's got it all. That's got Modern Lovers, Lou Reed. It's, you know, it's just driving along, and he's just all over the joint. Who's that? Call him my name, you know, over and over and over again. Let me dream if I want to. Meow, 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 meow. Yeah, it's like there's a real danger in that. That never, that's not on their records, but it's, uh, like, there's a uh, Live at CVGB's album that came out in 76, which uh, I guess I guess it gathered a lot of the unsigned bands, the bands that were still unsigned. Uh, uh, a lot of the ones were signed, even if the records hadn't come out yet. But this gathered a lot of the unsigned bands that were CBGB's regulars on a compilation called Live at CBGB's, uh, and that was on that. Uh, that's just a great song to me. You know, before we go any further, I want to I want to just send a shout out to uh, the people at Rhino. Uh, they, it, Rhino Records. You know, it's got to be 20 years ago now. They started putting out all these box sets. They started with Nuggets, which was a garage rock from the 60s in America. Then they had like Children of Nuggets, which is a, or just the second Nuggets box, which is a garage rock or psychedelia and garage rock from uh, England. Uh, and then they did a whole series of like, you know, decade stuff. Um, Have a nice decade. Have a nice decade is yeah. the '70s, a bunch of singles. Right. The, the then uh, all, but also from the '70s they did No Thanks, which is the punk rock box set, and they did uh, Left of the Dial is the '80s one. It's about '80s indie rock. These they're incredible box sets of music, and they're really informative. They have these great booklets. Alec Palau, who's a friend of a good friend of Immers, who's the uh, bass player for the Sneeches, is actually the executive producer on a lot of them and writes a lot of the. You know, what they'll do is they'll have these big booklets that have several essays by different writers, and then they'll go song by song through every song with blurbs and photos about every single song in the box. And I think Alec writes all that stuff. Uh, and they're, they're magnificent. And, you know, I was young uh, for a lot of this music, and I, I heard parts of it. But when I really got into punk at some point was, you know, when I wanted to go back and really check it out, I got that, that box set, or all of those box sets, if I'm being honest. I got all of them. Uh, and, you know, when we were preparing for this, I really went back through that a lot, too. I mean, uh, it's just exhaustively good. Uh, it's worth getting for anybody. Yeah, it's a great chronology. They do a fantastic job of, you know, it's like in the early 20th century when they were compiling all the folk music of the 19th century. And they were compiling all the blues music from from the South. And, and they were, you know, trying to find some ways of archiving this. And Rhino's been a great place to get stuff that either never was or was was for a very very short amount of time and specifically in the punk movement as we've talked about so many great bands influential bands and we're talking about really the cream of the crop here or even not so much the cream of the crop but but the bands that kind of poked their way through and were historically motivating and inspiring to another generation but there are plenty of other or just ones. great or just great period or just great they'll they'll put stuff on there that like didn't sell, you know. Right. It's a great. It's but the it box that's called "No Thanks" with a with an exclamation point. The seventies punk rebellion. It's got a picture of like a six year old in a sailor suit smoking a cigarette on the cover. <laughs> um, these are all great box. You know, I just meant to like. Uh, yeah, they're fantastic, Ryan. You know, just mention it because you know, input. It, it was also hugely helpful in putting this together and talking. When we when we decided to do this, I we we both spent a lot of time prepping and talking about it and and thinking about it and you know I. 
I can't. I, yeah, I went back to that set a lot because there's a lot of information in it and, and just a lot of great songs that I would not have thought of. You know, like uh, "Do Anything You Want to Do," the Eddie and the Hot Rod song. I don't know that I would have thought. The only place I had heard that song was from this box set years ago. You know, um, same thing with. Well, I knew Mink Deville from other stuff, but I didn't know that song because it's from a, a a tiny compilation that CBGB's put out. You know. Um, anyways, uh, to move on a little bit, we're still in 1976. Out in L.A. is the thing that happens. This is one that, like, is not on that set. And I had to find this because I grew up with a lot of great bands in California playing music. There was a great band in the Bay Area that I really loved called The Beat. They had to change their name to the Paul Collins Beat because there was a beat in England who also had to change their name to the English Beat because there was the beat in in the Bay Area. That's what I thought you thought was the beat. No, it was called The Beat. But then they changed their name to the Paul Collins beat, just like the beat in England changed their name to the English beat. Uh, fronted by a guy named Paul Collins, who was a great songwriter. There was the, I, the one of my favorite L.A. bands in the 80s, in the early 80s, was uh, the Plimsolls, fronted by uh, the great Peter Case, who was a great singer-songwriter. They had that song, A Million Miles Away. They're, they're in the Valley Girl movie. You, they go to the club right. to see the... He takes them to the punk club to see the Plimsolls play. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. But there's a band who never make a record. Uh, called The Nerves. And The Nerves have three lead singers and three songwriters, three incredibly gifted songwriters, Peter Case, Paul Collins, and uh, Jack Lee. And maybe that's just too much for any one band to have three mm-hmm. guys. You know, it, it can be a problem. When it, you know, and they, they eventually, they do some recordings, they fall apart. Uh, I don't think they ever got signed, really. It never, none of it ever comes out. It was all compiled years later. Uh, I, I got The Nerves record Sometime, like, maybe 10 years ago now, I finally it was put out. A few other things they'd done. I think the Breakaways is a band some of them were in. Uh, maybe Paul Collins and Jack Lee were in the Breakaways. I'm not sure. Anyways, uh, this Nerves album is so good. And, I mean, it's not even an album. It's a collection of singles and, and like, recordings they did. I'm going to play you two songs from it in a row. The first one is called One Way Ticket. It's a Peter Case song. He sings the lead on it. The second is a Jack Lee song that became a massive hit for somebody else and you'll probably recognize it when we get to it but this band never happened like a lot of bands at this time like a lot of great bands in the history of music with all the talent in the world it just doesn't work for some reason or another and that's life so this is a couple songs by them the second one I'm not going to tell you what it's called but you'll recognize it when it gets there but first this is Peter Case's song One Way Ticket I'm just going to play him in a row Give me a one way ticket Give me the one way fit Give me a one way ticket Oh yeah, get me out of here Give me a one-way fare Give me a one-way ticket 
I have not heard this band, but I love them. I love them for so many reasons. First of all, that's Hanging on a Telephone, which is the very first song on Blondie's quintessential Blondie album, the big kid album. It's got Heart of Glass on it and, uh, um, you know, whatever. Anyway, so I recognize that right away. It's It's got a great melody, great rock and roll song. And the first one, which was had so many different ideas in my head. I, I, I think I, I, I quoted about, what did I say? I said it sounded like La Bamba on steroids. But what it, what it really... <laughs> More like La Bamba on amphetamines. On amphetamines, yeah. thank you. Um, but it also reminded me, sound-wise, of what I love about the first Police album, which was what I used to argue with my, my producer and the people that worked on, on our demos when I was in a band in the 80s, and I used to say, I want the living room sound. <laughs> Drove them crazy, and they're like, what the hell does that mean? Because I remember it just sounded like the police, that first record sounds like they're right playing, and, and, I, and I said to Adam while this was playing, I was like, this sounds like these guys are playing, if I turn around, they're going to be in the apartment playing. There's no effects. It's, I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit, but I mean, there's no overmastering, but it's not lo-fi either. No, no. The, the, the instruments are very, very well uh, separated, unlike some of the punk we've been playing, like the Ramones or certainly the Stooges. You could hear all the instruments clearly. Great uh, harmonies, very very recognizable choruses, just good songwriting, good pop rock. That's a great punk record. To me, the first Outlandos to more, it's a great punk record. It absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. yeah first, the first, first song on that record? Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. like that. Sounds yeah, like that. It does, it does. Yeah. 
So anyway, uh, that's fa- I've, that's a whole new thing for me. I had never heard the nerves. That's Isn't that cool? One. Thank you. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I'm a fan. And if you like the first song, that's uh, Peter K singing. A uh, great band, the Plimsolls. They have a record. I don't think the record's called A Million Miles Away, but the single was. I can't remember the name of the record off the top of my head. I'll maybe try and get back to that later. Also, uh, Paul Collins uh, is in that band singing harmonies on these two songs. He's not the lead on either one of those. He has a great band called the Paul Collins Beat. They have a, The record to get for them, it, to me, is called The Kids Are the Same, um, which I think may be on Berserkly. I can't remember, but... Um, yeah, I mean it's it's killer. It's unbelievable. Uh, you know, talking next about next to you is the first song on the police album. All I yes, want to yeah, be next, is to, next you. to you. Um, so you know, we're talking about like Mink Deville comes in from San Francisco. The the, the Eddie and the Hot Rods over in Britain playing it. Uh, that's from L.A. now with uh, the Nerves. There are a bunch of kids in L.A. Uh, in Cleveland, which in the mid seventies might have been a pretty shitty place to be you know that city's been cleaned up a lot and it's got uh, a beautiful downtown that may have been a pretty grim place in the 70s that the that fucking river caught on fire isn't yeah. that in the 70s like the, yeah 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 uh, that's that the Cuyahoga the Randy, Randy Newman, Newman song, song burn on, burn on big, big river yeah. burn on which is not the usual chorus with the big river uh lyric but there's a band an uh, underground band called rocket from the tombs uh and they have a disagreement at some point they're a part of a cult uh, underground hit in in Cleveland, and they kind of have an artistic difference split. Uh, two of the guys, uh, Johnny Blitz and uh, is it Johnny Blitz? Yeah, Cheetah Chrome and Johnny Blitz leave. Uh, they get Steve Baders and they form and some a couple other guys and That's they form where the Dead Boys. The are Dead from. Boys, right, yeah. yeah. They form the Dead Boys out of Rocket from the Tombs. David Thomas and Peter Laffner form Perubu. Peter Laffner, you might remember the name because when we did the the fourth podcast. We, I think we played uh, a song of his that Mary Lou Lord covered called Cinderella Backstreet. Right. Um, he died soon after that, before the uh, Peribu did any records. But they are all like this grim... They have such an, uh, uh, a mood and a, a, a texture of grim, shitty, gray, bleak 70s Cleveland. And it, it like, I mean, the Dead Boys get angry and, and they... Uh, I think they run into the Ramones come through on tour and they go to see them play and they hang out with them afterwards and become friends and talk them into getting them an audition at CBGB's. And then as soon as they can, they split down and head to New York, get into the Bowery and start playing at CBGB's every week. But, uh, Perubu stays. I, I heard a lot of Perubu when I was growing up because Immer was a massive Perubu fan. He was always playing Perubu for me, you know, and they were this really dark industrial, uh, very powerful, but also like very, intellectual band like uh and they lasted for a long time they were all there through the through the 80s to me into the 90s i believe and maybe they're still playing quite honestly they 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 had they did not have a short history they they really got into the indie music scene and and made records for years and years and years um and this is one of the first songs by them though uh i think it's from their first record although i'm not sure about that um, but it, it, this is a song called Final Solution. This is Perubu in 1976.
Yeah, man. Like they're using. I don't want to say art rock stuff, but they're, they're, yeah, maybe. I mean, they're 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 using distortion and dissonance in ways not just to have fun screaming your guitar, but to like signal foreboding and like fear and you know. After the lines, after each line in that song, they have that, you know, things that are distorting with, it's really interesting to me how they're doing that. Like that, they're, they're now you're really, you're, you're thinking about what you're playing, not just to like for the rock of it, but also to make a certain kind of impression. It's a pretty intense thing right there. I agree. I, I think that for me, I hear, I said it one of the earlier songs we played, like Townsend influence or who influence. It's funny, the punk uh, movement, we talked about how they were, if they weren't railing against the big bands or the pop bands, they were they were certainly using it as a, yeah, the Beatles are over, the Stones, it's over. You know, it's our time now. Uh, the Who, for some reason, didn't get shoveled under in that. The, the Sex Pistols covered Substitute. A lot of bands did My Generation. Uh, uh, I can't explain. Uh, so... But who were a little angrier, though, anyway? Much they angrier, were, right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, of course, uh, Townsend understood this even in the early 70s when he wrote Quadrophenia and The Punk Meets the Godfather and that idea. But um, the reason why I bring it up is you've noticed, and you might have noticed, one, one of the rebellions of the punk movement was not long or any kind of guitar solos. Like, that was not part of the... In there, that's a very interesting guitar solo in which he's not trying to be, you know, a guitar soloist, but there's clearly a part where he goes off from the band there and is playing this weird sort of uh, melodic but also weepy guitar piece there that reminds me very much of what Townsend was doing in the early days where he would go off for a second and do that. And and that's why I think that that speaks to me. It's It's a lot more... What's the word I'm looking for? There's a depth to it. Uh, there's a storytelling aspect to that song that brings you into that kind of pathos that I like. That some of the other punk stuff where they're punching kind of miss, you know? I, that, that, that song to me has a lot more – it reminds me more of 60s kind of rock than anything else we've played. Well, I think it's really dangerous with any of these things to be saying – yeah, there are certain uh, – to be saying that punk was about no guitar solos because – that's kind of what it evolved into. People just didn't do long sort of, but kind of the, one of the progenitors of punk is the MC5. They certainly have guitar solos, and so he was Alice Cooper, yes. and uh, Death is playing guitar solos in theirs. And also, one of the earliest and the most important of the CBGB's bands is Television, which is all guitar solos. <laughs> you know, it's like they're all doing it. I mean, it's just that there's a million ways to play any of these kinds of music. Someone's always trying to tell you what it's all about. It's never all about. Yeah, I'm not trying to yeah, pigeonhole yeah, I mean, them. We talked about it before. Yeah. CBGB's had all different kinds of music, but in that, that's of all the songs we've played over the last two podcasts. That's the first time I heard a guitar doing something, going off, literally soloing, and it being another counter melody that was going on in the song. Well, it struck there, me that way. It's there in it's there in the death song, though, for sure. They have guitar, the short solos, and it's about to be there. I mean, we're in 1976 now. We're going to get to 77 and play uh, television, and you know, there's. Yeah, we're going to be back to having some solos, right? And, uh, and tell the television that recorded you mentioned that recorded their first album, which is a great album, but is nothing like the television that started out with Richard Hell and everybody. You know, it was a completely different outfit. The, the one that was recorded, I think, was a lot more uh, polished, for lack of a better well, they've been playing together for longer too. True, you True. know, they had and they'd added Robert Quine, right? Which is a big deal because now they have two guitars, right? Um, uh, I just want to mention one thing about that song, the 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 first line of like the third verse is uh oh I just, there's, also, there's a lot of self-loathing in that song too that first verse the girls won't touch me because i've got a misdirection living at night isn't helping my complexion the signs all say it's a social infection 
a little bit of fun's never been an insurrection. You know, and you, I don't need a cure. I don't need a cure. I don't need a cure. I need a final solution. You know, it's funny because that conjures images of of Nazi, yeah, the Holocaust, Nazi, Nazism. When you think the the Holocaust, when you say final solution, uh, which I don't think is where they were coming from at all, but. But the but the punks did co-opt that. We but, talked yeah, about I mean, a little bit. I mean, about they are they are the hinting podcast. at that in the th- in the song. But it's 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 about something that's very very dark. When it gets co-opted, when the punk movement gets co-opted in a large sense by the uh, the really Nazi a- symbolism, they pull that song out of the set and stop playing it. Ah, uh, you know, and uh, you know, and and to be fair. I mean, does Sid Vicious know what he's doing when he wears a swastika to go on the BBC and talk about? It? No, but you know, you know what he is doing. He's he's wearing something. Uh, you know, he could be wearing anything that would shock. The whole thing was for the Sex Pistols was a fashion movement as much as a musical. Movement. Oh, very much so. And so it it, it literally was born in a, in, in in the sex shop, the Malcolm McLaren's sex uh, store. On uh, well, the store is called Sex. The store, yeah, it was a sex it's not shop. a sex it shop. Was, it's, it a, it's a, a boutique that's called something else, and they changed the name to Sex. Sex. His and and Vivian Westwood. Right. Hence, Sex Pistols. But it gets to the point where after a while. Everybody just starts wearing the swastika or painting it on walls around England just to be provocative, not for any, I believe. Well, it, it all component of fascism or anti-Semitism, but of course it would be taken that way. Well, not just taken that way; it will grow into it too. The problem with co-opting well, a symbol heads, like that heads, yeah. as a way to make your party rebellious True. is that people join the party and begin to think the symbol is the thing, and then punk becomes skinheads, which becomes a, a white supremacist movement. Thing. Yep. Um, both in England and in America, that's again. Yeah, it's a but, problem they, with, but that's why they got rid of Final Solution from their set, because they don't want to be affiliated right. with that. Yeah. Before we leave Perubu, one more thing I want to point out. In the third verse, there is a uh, – the, the opening line of the third verse is, buy me a ticket to a sonic reduction. A couple years later, two of the people that used to be members of Rocket from the Tomb with Perubu are in a band. What am I talking A couple years later. A, a few minutes later. <laughs> the Dead Boys are going to release uh, Young, Loud, and Snotty, and the first song – Oh, is, yeah. Is Sonic, Sonic Reducer. Reducer. Right. You know, so, like, I just, it's interesting, like, because they all came from the same band. They're probably friends, you know, and, like, buy me a ticket to a Sonic Reduction. I don't know if he's referring to a song that they, they'd they already written in the Dead Boys or there, or, like, they borrowed Redu- Sonic Reduction from him, but they become Sonic, Re- you know, Sonic Reducer becomes one of the great, maybe the great punk anthem of the New York scene, in a way, uh, you know, around the same time, they come from the same band. I just thought it was interesting when I was like, I'd never really looked at the lyrics to the song until I was prepping for this. And I looked at it, I'm like, buy me a ticket to a sonic reduction. Well, shit. You know? <laughs> they're selling tickets to their next band. Come on. Yeah. Well, they're already out of the band. But, but, you know, like, I don't know what the chicken or the egg is here, date wise, but, you know, two bunch of people from the same bands form two bands, and the, the phrase sonic reducer and sonic reduction turns up in first songs, some of the first songs by both of them. So now we got to talk about, and you talked about doing a uh, a long interview with Kim Fowley, and yeah. like one of my favorite bands, just as a cultural movement, is is the Runaways. You know, uh, his band, yeah, yeah. Uh, just because it's hard to look back on it now and think this way, but in 1975, 1976, there's a lot of people for whom women are still a part of the 50s. Oh, not yeah. not a lot of people. I mean, there's also a lot of people for whom women are moving into a whole new right. liberation movement. But for a lot of people who are fighting that liberation movement, they still think of women as an uh, an icon of the '50s in a certain way. And so, rock and roll is is a, is annoying and abrasive and rebellious enough to them. Punk music, even more so, is like noise to their ears. But what happens when you have a bunch of girls, and not just girls, but 16 year old girls, 
like teenagers, some of them. I think Sherry Curry was 16 maybe when she started in the band, maybe younger, going on stage in a uh, bustier, in, in like uh, in lingerie, and playing a song where the lyric is, hello, daddy, hello, mom, I'm a cherry bomb. Something as, as like openly sexual. Girls aren't expressed, are supposed to express openly sexual things, and not many did in music even then. There's lots of women in music, but they're not saying things like that. And now you've got a 16-year-old girl from the suburbs of L.A. going on stage in underwear, and people go wild, both loving it and hating it. I mean, what was it like in your conversation with Kim Fowley? Well, we, we, we touched upon Runaways. I, I interviewed Kim, who co-wrote two songs on the Kiss Destroyer record for my book, Shout It Out Loud, The Story of Kiss's Destroyer and the Making of American Icon. Wait, what songs? Uh, he, he wrote King of the Nighttime World. No shit. Yeah, for, for a band. Uh, he and the leader of the band for, uh, that did... Um, uh, th- that had a band that died and Bob Ezrin was supposed to produce them and then um, they went nowhere and so Bob said I really like King of the Nighttime World if you ever you know he co-wrote a Kim he said I'll use it later on and he gave it to Kiss he also what's the other one uh, the other one was Do You Love Me he wrote the lyrics to oh, Do You Love oh, Me shit. there's a great story he told me where he's in the back seat of a um, of a limo picking up uh, someone at the airport he's with Joan Jett and her mother Joan Jett the guitar player the Runaways and Joan's mother and he's writing the lyrics to Do You Love Me on a napkin because Bob calls him when he's uh, putting the Runaways together and he said listen I need some lyrics to finish out this song it's going to be the last song and Kisses Destroyer you're going to make millions of dollars you'll make more money on this than you ever will with the Runaways which was very prophetic and uh, jo- Joan Jett's mother was like what are you doing writing on a napkin he goes I'm working on my pension <laughs> Which he said to that day when I interviewed him, and, he, and, and uh, Kim died a couple of years ago now. It was the last long-form interview he gave because I remember talking to somebody in his organization to get some permissions for something I used for the book, and they said, Kim's not well. And, and I said, oh, you know, I, I wanted to talk to him more time because now you, actually you were the last person to really interview him. We spent about three hours on the phone till the wee hours, and I've always thought about putting it out on YouTube, the full interview, because Kim goes way back to the late 50s, 60s. Jimmy, he put Jimi Hendrix up in, in L.A. when he had nothing. He started the GTOs. He worked with Frank Zappa. He gave material to Alice Cooper, including many songs on uh, – he introduced them to Bob Ezrin. It, it goes on and on. I mean he put together wow. most of the soundtrack to American Graffiti, stuff you would never think of Kim Fowler. He produced Warren Zevon's Wanted Dead or Alive record. This, huh. Look up his Wikipedia page. It's a, the guy is like the zealot of the music business. He's everywhere you want to be. So um, he starts to span The Runaways specifically just to do exactly what you said, to be in the face of everyone. Now, remember, this is the mid-'70s. The ERA amendment is like hanging by a thread. There are people now backlashing against it because they're saying, oh, if I'm going to stay home with my children, if I'm, gonna, if I'm not a working woman and I care about my husband, that I'm some sort of heretic, that I'm some sort of Uncle Tom of the women's movement, this is what is going on right now. Secondly, as we said before, it's a boys' club. One thing about that, though, too, I just want to mention this because yes. people forget this. One of the interesting facts about the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, Correct. that he talks about as hanging by a thread, it never passed. Never did. It still has not passed. No, which is a miracle. Before you think that was a – isn't it crazy that back then we didn't want to have an Equal Rights Amendment for women? Just, just keep in mind that it never passed. It has never passed. It probably will never pass no. because – uh, they're all lined up against it at this point. Um, Correct. But anyways, go on. Go on. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so so the Runaways. I, I, I wanted to say when you mentioned about the lingerie and the provocative lyrics. When I think of Madonna, when I first saw Madonna rolling around on the floor, on the stage floor of the 1984 Video Music Awards, 
uh, in a wedding dress. The first thing I thought of was the Runaways. Like, the Runaway, she should give a check. I remember saying it loud to someone sitting next to me. There should be a check to the, run, to the Runaways because that's exactly where that started. Because there are many people who said the Madonna wearing the boy toy shirt and everything was setting back the women's liberation movement by 10 decades because she was doing that. But what she was doing was taking what the Runaways were doing, which is saying, no, 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 I'm not part of any movement. We're expressing ourselves sexually. We're expressing ourselves uh, thematically, and you're not going to stop us. Cherry Bomb, to but me— that is a movement. It's, 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 it's their movement. It's, it's, but it's also a liberation movement. It's, it, people define liberation in different ways, too, and they're saying— I can do whatever I want. No woman can tell me what to do, and no man can tell me what to do. Mostly, no man. Because let's face it, the people who tell women what to do most of the time are men. Are fucking men, right? You know, and they're in both these cases. These people are saying, "Oh, I will do this my way. I'll express myself, my sexuality, my music, whatever, any fucking way I want to." And Kim Kim, Kim Fowley was a Svengali. He put this band together based on that. But I mean, let's face it. He it discovered Lita Ford, who went on to have a great career in heavy rock in the 1980s. Joan Jett. Is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and belongs in there. She's one of the great icons, a, fa- a fabulous person too. I met her. She's a great uh, person and a real supporter of every kind of music. And um, the whole band, the whole idea of it, and this is a band that crashed and burned quickly for him. But they did have this record, and I, I made a joke when I was out with the Counting Crows this uh, past summer. I made the joke with uh, Immer and uh, Adam, who sit down and do your whole set beforehand. I was like, oh, you guys are not going to do Cherry Bomb? I don't know why I brought this up, and I just listened to the tape, and you said something funny. You said, yeah, I can't sing that. It's hard to get the ch-ch-chas, right? <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, everything about this, it's musical, it's provocative, it's salacious. It's, it's the Runaways, man. The whole story is fantastic. It, it fucking rocks, too. It, it sure On does. a base, most base, pure level, it just fucking rocks. This is the Runaways 1976 Cherry Bomb.
guitar solo. <laughs> <laughs> Not only a guitar solo in that song, but while Lita Ford is playing it, it seems like uh, Cherie Curry is playing with herself. I don't know. She's having an <laughs> orgasm in the background yeah. while the guitar solo goes on. I don't know what. I don't know what, how they're doing it, but. Uh, yeah. Not only do they have a guitar solo, but they point up the moment by masturbating or something. I don't right, know. There, right, there's like yeah. an orgasm going on over it. <laughs> she predates Donna Summer's moaning for 17 minutes. Oh, yeah. That's year. right. Uh, well, I also wanted to point out, which uh, Adam told me to mention that, um, and I said to him while this is playing, if you have a chance after this podcast or whenever you're uh, you know, jogging or driving or on your way to work, you should listen to um, the Live at the Bunicon record, which proves – Without a shadow of a doubt. Now, all live albums in the 70s were touched in some way. Uh, and I'm sure there's overdone. But that's a great live band. They were a true band. You know, a lot of uh, girl bands, quote-unquote, or female bands later on, the Go-Go's and the, 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 um, the uh, um, I can't believe it, oh, Bangles. Kind of, you know, they were they were questions for their musicianship. Did we they just put them together because they're all girl? This is a legitimate, and 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 they went on to do what Lita Ford, as I said, went on to do some great work in the '80s as a rock guitar uh, player, and uh, and Joan Jett uh, is beyond reproach. So this is a truly great rock and roll band, and they are fantastic live, and it comes across in that Budokan show. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, I love that. You know, it's funny. I want to mention as well as the Budokan thing. The other thing to check out is the movie. Which is a fantastic film. I, I the biopic, and, and that's coming. That's coming from Adam Duritz, by the way, who cannot stand those type of movies. Well, but I, I don't usually like movies about musicians, but they really, really, it's a great movie, and uh, the performances. Kristen Stewart is so good as Joan Jett. You so get her love of playing rock and roll, uh, you know, and and Dakota Fanning is Shuri Curry, and she's amazing. Michael Shannon plays Kim Fowley. Uh, but it's really the relationship between the girls, specifically Cherie Curry and Joan Jett, you know, uh, Dakota Fanning and Kristen Stewart, that comes through in the movie so well. There's a scene where they're sitting on their bed in the room and they're making T-shirts to to play to break, play at concerts. They're they're tearing holes. Or Kristen Stewart's sitting at home. She's tearing holes in a T-shirt and she's uh, attaching uh, safety pins. It's like she's making her rock and roll shirt. And it's just there's something so true about that movie and the way. At least that part of it. The relationship of the girls in the band, specifically those two. I love that movie so much. Um, even the sort of sadness of it later on when the band falls apart, but Joan's going to make her own music, and she's sitting in a room, she starts like air guitaring and sort of singing to herself, and, and, you, and she's imagining one of the songs from the first Joan Jett album. I can't remember which song it is. It's just such a good movie about rock and roll, and there are very few to me. They're all so dismissive of musicians, and this one... Which has more fuck ups in musicians fucking up more than almost in any other band. It's still there's something amazing about it and what it captures as someone who's in a band and like has been in one for a very long time. It captures this uh, the uncapturable. What what causes groups of people to bond together and make this group art at high volume at high speed? It's a weird thing to be in a band, and they really get it. That's amazing to me. Yeah, the band, and it must be a Kim Fowley thing, because the band that completely crashed and burned was the Hollywood Stars, uh, and they had one record that was completely produced. They tried to get Ezrin, and then they produced it, and, and King of the Nighttime World is on there, uh, a co-write by Fowley, who also wrote, he was a Svengali, he put bands together, he managed bands, he produced, uh, he worked in studios, he, he did every part of the music business. Again, he was uh, he was all over the place. He was a renaissance man in rock and roll, but... 
that band was doomed. First of all, he tries to get all these teenage girls together to do this, and no one ever, you know, there was no audience for this. They were creating their own road, which is tough enough. And and we talked about these last two podcasts, how difficult this music was to get out. There were 100 bands for one that made it out. Well, that's always the case. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, sperm finding the egg. It's just one finds the egg, and the rest of them are just done. Well, the truth is that most of the great music in the world is never heard by anybody. That's why we could find so many great songs that no one knew for our covers album, because the truth is most great songs no one's ever heard. Because there's just much more out there that you haven't heard than there is that you have heard. Right, and Especially nowadays when it's easier to make music, there's so much great stuff out there. Um, music's like, as a listener, you're in heaven music right now. All you have to do is take, you have to be willing to take the time and look. But there's so much out there now. And that's what we're hoping with this podcast. I know that's what your hope was. And that's why it's Underwater Sunshine was a great name for your record of covers. And it's also a great name for this podcast in a sense where we are shining light on a lot of things that maybe people don't, you know, we're, d- we're turning people on to music. And that's the feedback we've been getting. And I'm glad we are because a lot of people don't hear. I've heard many, many songs on this podcast working with you that I'd never heard before. And now I'm a fan of the band. Well, it's another thing about, it's one of the reasons why when we talked about starting the new music festival too, and in the conversation, I mentioned what you and I were doing because it was before the first podcast had come out and my friends decided, <laughs> uh, on mass to also steal our name and use it for our festival as well. So we ended up naming the festival the Underwater Sunshine <laughs> yeah, Festival. you own it, man. Well because it's, it's everywhere now. So another thing I want to mention is, I, as we told you before, at a certain point, the Sex Pistols were looking for a singer. Uh, they tried to... Malcolm McLaren had been to New York to see the Ramones, I think, and checked out Richard Hell, who was the, you know one of the great men about town, at least men about the Bowery at that point, and tried to get him to come over and sing with the Sex Pistols. He didn't, but they found John Lydon. They began playing around England, and by the late 1977, uh, earlier in the year, they actually opened for Eddie and the Hot Rods, and they also opened for a pub, a pub rock band called the 101ers, and the 101ers guitar player was a guy named Joe Strummer, who saw the Sex Pistols and completely freaked out. Uh, by changed the, his life, changed his whole direction. His, he was a hippie, playing yeah. country rock songs. And by the summer of 77, uh, he's got his new band, The Clash with Mick Jones and they play their first gig ever opening for the Sex Pistols in July of 77 but by the fall of 77 the Sex Pistols are they've been in the studio and they're finally ready to release their first single uh, in the UK which is called Anarchy in the UK they play it on TV on several TV shows before it comes out and then it comes out and people (laughs) freak out good, bad all around everything yeah there's you, you want to know about the Sex Pistols, you have to read about them. There's not one morsel of their, what, four, 18 months in existence that isn't interesting. But one of the main, the main things that people kind of forget about, but you hear about it. I knew about it when I was a kid, but the Sex Pistols are kind of, I don't even know if, if another generation knows this. But the Sex Pistols appeared on a talk show in England. Grundy. Yeah, the uh, the evening show. Yeah, right. Now Grundy apparently was a wise ass David Letterman type that would make fun of anything. And here come these four. Obviously, I mean they smell bad. Their teeth are rotten. They're you know pissed and and monosyllabic. They can barely speak. And Steve Jones blurts out "fuck" on this live television show. The next day, much to Malcolm McLaren's 
delight because that's why he put the band together. It ends up on the cover of the Daily Mirror. It's on the cover of every newspaper in England before anyone even knew the Sex Pills. They didn't have a record out yet. There's more to it than that, Please. actually, though. There's more to it because I, I, I read this whole thing about it. And it's checking in one of the things I was doing for this. I, I was trying to remember what that was called, this whole incident, the Grundy incident. See, the Sex Pistols went around with a group of people, their friends, uh, known as the Bromley Contingent. Um, and one of the people in the Brownlee contingent was William Broad or Billy Idol. Um, another was Susie Sue. And uh, they're on the show. And, and uh, Bill Grundy, who later says he was drunk, or maybe he says it in the show, he's talking with Susie Sue uh, on the air. And Susie Sue says she, I, she'd always wanted to meet him. You know, and Grundy says, do you really? We'll meet afterwards, shall we? And then Jones looks at him and says, you dirty sod, you dirty old man. Grundy says, well, keep going, Chief. Keep going. Go on. You've got another five seconds. Say something outrageous. And Jones, Steve Jones says, you dirty bastard. He goes, go on again. He says, you dirty fucker. He goes, what a clever boy. And Steve Jones says, what a fucking rotter. <laughs> and so it's only broadcast in London. It's not on the air everywhere. But of course, yeah, it's like the, 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 the headline in the Daily Mirror, very famously the next day, is The Filth and the Fury. The Filth and the Which Fury. Which becomes, you know, a famous call line for them, you know? Right, right. There's a film about that. Yeah, The Filth and the Fury. And that was, and remember, talk about great PR. That is before anyone had ever heard. I mean, that's like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in England. They become the story for weeks. And it has nothing to do with their records or anything. It's just like, wow, what the wow? And so right after that, they become the Sex Pistols in lore and story. Yeah, and, and they, they had a tour that started the next day with The Clash and Johnny Thunders. Uh, and I mean, The Clash and The Heartbreakers opening for them. Not the Tom Petty Heartbreakers, the, the Heartbreakers, which is Johnny Thunders and uh, formerly Richard Hell's Band. Not anymore at this point. Right. Uh, yeah, they came over from New York to open for them. This tour, the tour is called the Anarchy Tour of the UK. Uh yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. But it was all it, it's Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees who had right. started over because the guy's idol, she's all, I always wanted to meet him and he's leering at her or something. And, and he, I mean, in, for his, in his defense, he's like, come on, you can do better than that. Go on, boy, say what <laughs> yeah. you want to say. Well, he was also putting himself on the map. Not that he needed it. Well, but no, what he... happens with him, though, is like it, he gets suspended for that and he gets reinstated, but it's the end of his career. It ruins him. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it ends his career, basically. Uh, um, he gets because I mean he's a television. He don't, they don't have to go on TV again, or right. unless they're asked to, and everybody wants them, even though they deny it. You know they have some problems, but yeah. Anyways, the, the, right at that time, they released their first single, which is "Anarchy in the UK," one of and my favorite songs of all time. It is amazing. <laughs> Bye, cause I wanna be 
Anarchy in the UK. That is late 1976. By January 1977, they were kicked off EMI. Yeah. <laughs> and and out of a and out of a label deal. <laughs> yeah. It didn't take long. I mean, they, like I said, there's not one month, one week, one day, one hour of the Sex Pistols, I don't know, maybe year and a half existence. And you have to remember this is the early Sex Pistols before Sid Vicious joined, which basically turned them into a clusterfuck. <laughs> and they they weren't even musical anymore. It was just people spitting and throwing glass at them and feedback and Johnny Rotten spitting and yelling at people telling them they're suckers and idiots for the next God knows how many months. When they went on the U.S. tour, it was a disaster. Uh, But it was a high-profile disaster, which at that time, again, made Malcolm McLaren, their manager, very happy. And it definitely gave a lot of kids a nice little chest-bumping, but it didn't do them any good or any of the people trying to make money from them. It was really an insurance disaster. <laughs> Bob Gruen, who I also interviewed for the Kiss book, traveled with the Sex Pistols on, the on that tour. photographer, Bob Gruen. The photographer, Bob yeah. Gruen, right here from New York. Uh, and, uh, and he really became the CBGB's photographer, Bob. And he told me – I was interviewing him for the Kiss book, and he told me more stories about the punk <laughs> – he let the Clash sleep on his couch – I was sitting on the couch, and I was like, the Clash left here? He's like, yeah, Joe, Joe Ramone's head was right where your ass is. Um, so he, he went on the road with them, and he said he just couldn't believe how unbelievably undisciplined that tour was because he had been on other tours before. It had no – there was no control. The bus driver was drunk. They didn't know where they were going. They got lost. They were playing like in Texas and Alabama. <laughs> The tour went to places where people were trying to kill them. They had to run to the bus while people were running after them with guns. It's an amazing story, that Sex Pestles American tour. Well, they went through a lot of shit, you know, once that happened. Like, they, it's an interesting thing when your music is also about the fashion and the statement. You get too conceptual because it can fuck things up, too. As much as it makes you an icon, it can fuck things up. Like, they kicked Glenn Matlock out of the band, probably for a number of reasons. The one they gave was that he talked too much about how he liked the Beatles. Yeah, he's a Beatles fuck fan. you, you're not allowed to listen to the Beatles. Well, uh, one of the problems they probably later discovered is that when you kick your main songwriter out of the band because he likes the Beatles, you're left without anyone to write your songs right. after that. And you hire a guy to play bass who looks great and is absolutely the epitome of a punk other than Richard Hell in Sid Vicious, but can't play the bass at all. No. Nope. I mean, not at all. Nope. You know, and uh, they ran into a lot of stuff like that, you know, and there's a, there's a story, and we'll get to the band later, but there's a band in San Francisco called The Avengers, a great punk band, and one of the biggest moments of their lives is op- they open for the Sex Pistols at Winterland, and they're very excited about it. They end up becoming friends with Steve Jones, and they talk him into, like, I think he comes to produce a lot of their album, but they also saw just a band that, was disintegrated, couldn't play, couldn't do anything, and Especially actually, that and show. broke up like the next day. Yeah, and that's the show. The very last thing that Johnny Rotten said on a stage is, Do you ever get the feeling you've ever been cheated?" It's the last thing he says. The, the great rock and roll swindle, right there. Drops the drops the mic. Yeah, I mean that's what and that, walks off stage, and that's the end of the Sex Pistols. They interviewed Penelope Houston after that, and one of the things she said was like, "Yeah, it was amazing in some ways. We got to open for the Sex Pistols, but it was also incredibly depressing and horrible because, you know." It wasn't about music anymore. And they, they, were, they were done two days later, a day later. They broke up a day after that concert, I think, or two days after that concert, and that was the end of the Sex Pistols. Right. You know, um, anyways, this, we're in 1977 now, uh, and this is the year when, like— It's the year of punk, for all yes, intents and yes, purposes. Yes, yes, The, the year of punk broke. Now, now they get, they're on the cover of Rolling Stone and Cream magazine. Now they're becoming legitimate. And this is also a year that a lot of the bands that had been the, the forerunners, the progenitors of the scene at CBGB's— now is the year when their records actually come out. 
all the records come out this year. The first Elvis Costello record, that Joe Jackson record, uh, Richard Heads. Hell and the Voidoids, Blank Generation comes out, uh, Talking Heads 77, 77. Uh, Television's Marquee Moon. Right. Um, this is the year, the, cl- the Clash, the first Clash album uh, is also in there. And, and the, the Jam, this is the year everybody's record comes out. That Richard Hell is a member of uh, Television. He leaves because it's really not his thing. Uh, and he forms the Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunders, and he leaves that because it's not really his thing. Eventually, to form Richard Hell and the Voidoids, but this is the year. Uh... His best band, I think. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, and he's not even in any of those. Other... He's a big part of all those other bands, but he's gone before they ever record a note, which is hysterical to me. That like as big and important a fixture as he is, he's a big part of of Johnny Thunders, of Television, and in a way of the the Sex Pistols, but he never records a note with any of them. So just to take it in order, though, uh, I don't actually know what this is order. Johnny Thunder and the Heartbreakers released their first album, which is called uh, LAMF, which means Like a Motherfucker. And this is the band that, that Richard Hell had, had left, and they fucking rock. Um, Johnny Thunder's, of course, from the New York Dolls. He was the guitar player for the New York Dolls. This is One of the coolest looking people ever in yeah, rock and roll. Yeah, this is his band. It's Johnny Thunder and the Heartbreakers, 1977, from the album LAMF, Like a Motherfucker, Born to Lose. <laughs>
that's born to lose. You may think that was a Lana Del Rey song, but uh, this is the, this born to lose came a long time before that born uh. to lose. So, like I said, that's uh, that's Johnny Thunder and the Heartbreakers. You know, in this band, when I, there's a song late in his career, maybe we'll play it later. You can't put your arms around a memory, and I always think of it because it was Billy Thompson's favorite song, and you never knew Billy, but Billy was uh, Billy left Dylan in 1993, I think, to come work for us. Never left, and he was a fixture on the left side of the stage, uh, handling Immer and uh, well, David Bryson's and later David's and Immer's guitars for all those years. And uh, he was an absolute giant of a man. And he is from New Jersey, and he loved the Heartbreakers. They're one of his favorite bands of all time, and his maybe his favorite song of all time was "You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory," which is one of their later records and a heartbreaking song, kind of. Uh, about a, a scene that's falling apart at that point too, you know. Um, I always think of Billy when I hear the Heartbreakers. But uh, anyways, well, like what we were talking about before that, Richard Hell, you know, he he doesn't have a place in television. Maybe it's it's too it's 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 a it's art rock, which he kind of likes in a way, but it's Tom Berlain's thing, you know. And then he joins the Heartbreakers, and and they're like this fever fueled rock and roll sloppy, like the Dolls in a way. Um, and that's not really right for him either. And he leaves there because he realizes there's not much room for his songs. He gets his own band called Richard Hell and the Voidoids. And he puts out an incredible record, writes books. He's a poet. He, uh, I, I, I just love his songs. And they are a different thing. You can see where people, like, he's more from the, he's a punk, punk. But he's also from the Patty uh, Smith side of things. And you can see where, uh, as a kid, probably a 15-year-old kid at that point, Jim Carroll's probably very influenced by Richard Hell more than some of the other guys. Uh, it, it's his, it, later on, it's really his, and he's writing his books. Jim Carroll's 15, writing his, you think he writes Basketball, Basketball Diaries, Diaries at 15. Yeah. Um, That's questioned, but at least 18. You know, they, they did one of those Michael Jackson, oh, I was 15, no. you know, but I mean, that's always been questioned, but I, I think it speaks in that Holden Caulfield style of writing, uh, you know, the, the Salinger, the voice of this, the young person um, who doesn't have a grasp of the language, has no grasp of any worldly ideas. Everything is microcosm down to uh, taking a shit or, you know, or not getting busted in the smoking in the boys' room. And, and there is a, a connection between Richard Hell and Jim Carroll that I make with Charles Bukowski, who was much older, certainly. But I'm always reminded, when I read Richard Hell's book, and I wrote his publisher and I told him to, to compliment him. He didn't need my compliment, but I, I felt the need to write. And it wasn't even a book I was reviewing. I ended up reviewing it later because I loved it so much that I said, to me, this reminds me of Post Office, which was Bukowski's first book about having a shitty job at the post office after World War II and not being able to escape and going to the dog track and going to the horse track and driving a shitty car and being punched in the face by a woman at a bar. But he made it so romantic. He gave this, this romanticism to the demimont that I think Richard Hell does in his book. And I think that that's what Richard Hell was doing with the Voidoids more than anything else. And maybe it came to me later. I, I listened to the Voidoids in, in, in college, but he was so focused in the Voidoids that I, I hear his voice in the book years later that I'm talking about, his, his memoir, and, and a lot of his writings that were published eventually after he became fa- as famous as you can be in that movement. But I, I love the Voidoids, and I think it's uh, some of the more underrated music. And I actually like it way better than television, which I, I understand and I respect, uh, and I note the historic aspects of television. But I think 
Richard Hell, without a doubt, found his voice in the Voidoids, and it's a better band than just a better rock and roll. Well, I mean, wait. I'm not getting into an argument either about television. I, I have always worshipped television. Uh, and, but I will say this. We've been talking about Richard Hell for a long time in these podcasts for a very good reason. He is a seminal, seminal figure. And so much of this and the culture of the time centered around him. He was important to a lot of people, not just the people who heard his record or the people who read his book, but the people in all the bands he was in that he, that he had a cultural effect on. That he, that he put his imprint on those bands even though he never recorded a note with them. Um, and in that the Malcolm McDowell, Malcolm McLaren came to America to see what was going on at CBGB's and met Richard Hell and saw Richard Hell and took that whole idea back with him, changed the name of his shop to Sex and started telling everyone how to dress, which is to dress like Richard Hell. And by the way, Richard Hell, who didn't have a pot to piss in, lived in the Bowery and never moved out even years later, was safety pinning his shirts to keep them on his back. And that becomes the thing. I mean, that's the safety pin is the joke about the, about the you know, safety pin fashion. But that's what happened in, in London, and it was Richard Hell. As much as I'm saying that he's important for all these things outside of his music, when he does finally put the music out, in one song he sum, sums up not just the movement in a way, but his entire generation of people and how he felt about it and how a lot of them felt about it but didn't really have the words in all the punk songs to express as eloquently or as well as he did in this one song. And, uh, you know, people talk about whether they're in boomers or generation X or whether they're millennial. Well, in Richard Hell's opinion, he was a member of the blank generation. And that's the name of this song. This is from 1977's album, the blank generation. I think this is the first song on the record. It sure is. Richard Hell and the Voidoids blank generation.
blank generation And I can take it or leave it each time Well, I belong to the generation But I can take it or leave it each time love that song uh, i also love the one the one i heard first by him was love comes in spurts love comes in spurts oh it hurts oh no it hurts <laughs> I, I just fucking love that I, I think he's an interesting cat too because he's he's uh unlike a lot of people at that time which is what he's a poet too he's a, an author and a poet and he's really you know in some ways closer to Patti Smith than he is to some of the other guys, which is sort of the interesting thing about punk as we're going through these to me, is that it really isn't any one thing that you think of as punk. It's a very broad, wide-ranging like musical movement that incorporates all kinds of different shit and all kinds of different people from like, you know, your kind of really fun boneheaded rock and roll dictator stuff to, uh, you know, your really art, rock patty smith you know and also richard hell who combines both you know because while he is a poet and an interesting writer in some ways you know love comes in spurts oh no it hurts is you know it's a almost like a kid's joke about uh orgasms and and love you know it's definitely it's got some irreverence in it uh i don't know there's no one thing i think that makes this kind of music work and i and i love the fact that we've talked about this in other music but specifically in punk and specifically in new york in the 70s you know you have richard hell and his memoir and of course patty smith and hers talking about how they ran into each other and their versions of the run into you know and how they're sharing uh their love of rimbaud and verlaine and dylan and morrison and uh all that kind of stuff and all the literary stuff and the musical stuff but they're also going off and doing their own things it, within you know a 20 block radius of each other and being part of this movement especially in new york and i did want to mention uh that uh aside from those two great memoirs that we talked about earlier uh in the podcasts uh, i wanted to throw a shout out to will hermes who is a writer for rolling stone magazine and new york magazine and a few others uh he's he's working on a book on lou reed now but he he wrote a book in 2012 that i reviewed for the aquarian weekly uh based on the song by Talking Heads called Love Goes to Buildings on Fire, which I believe is the finest piece of writing about this whole thing we're talking about, but also talking about the birth of hip-hop and the birth of the Latino salsa salsa music in New York, the birth of disco, the birth birth of punk, the the shifting of the musical... really foundation that happened in New York in the 1970s. An excellent overview of that. And he talks very extensively about uh, Patti Smith's work doing poetry first and then Richard Hell and everything we've talked about. Television and to the Voidoids and everything else. What's his name again? Uh, Hermes. H-E-R-M-E-S. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool book. Though. It is. I'm going to read that anyway. It's fantastic. Yes, yeah. I'll get you a copy of that because I, that's that's one of the gifts that I for the last, since 2012, that I think of when I think of music fans. Hey, what do I get them for their birthday? What do I get them for... I get him Hermes' book because it, it makes the argument that I've been making and I made in the last podcast where, you know, in, in the greater scope, say a CNN's going to do an overview of rock music or people just, you know, that are on the outskirts don't know the inners or are not geeks like us. They just assume, well, punk is just, you know, that whole fashion statement that came out of England. And that is true. But 
they forget a lot of what happened in New York City. They forget that the Sex Pistols were, were inspired by uh, Richard Hell and by the Ramones and and the Clash and and how that goes along. So Hermes does a fantastic job of talking about between 1973, 74, all the way through 1978, how dominant New York City was in changing the very landscape of popular music. That's cool. You know, uh, I just finished this great book, too. I just read two books about performance in some. One of them that I recommend to any music fan, because it, it's also a lot, about a lot of my favorite music. Uh, Joe Boyd's book, White Bicycles. Right, have you mentioned you read that. that? Yeah. No, that I have not, but I want to. Phenomenal book. Um, uh, I, I read these two books at the same time, and in in in, uh, in both cases, when I found out they were on, uh, there were audio books as well, read by the authors. So I would read the book when I was at home, but when I was walking around or subwaying it or going places in New York, I would listen to it on my headphones um, or my ear pods, whatever they're called. Um, and the other one was uh, Mustache Shenanigans by uh, Jay Chandrasekhar, my friend who's the one of the Broken Lizard guys mm-hmm. who directs most of the Broken Lizard movies. Not all of them, but most of them. Uh, and he, he wrote a book about them coming up, him being a kid, being an Indian kid growing up in America, dreaming of being like a movie star and an actor, even knowing the reality that Indians don't get to be movie stars. That you either play the funny Indian guy, the guy that runs the, the quickie mart uh, in the case <laughs> right. of Apu. Right. Um, or you, you know, but you don't really get to be the, uh, he, he grew up in Chicago, thought of himself as an American and, you know, a funny guy, a pot smoker, a stoner, whatever, just, he seemed like a normal American could grow up to be a movie star, but like, it's just not a reality for a lot of people that look like him, quite honestly. And it's how like, they managed to make that happen anyways, by forming this comedy troupe, Broken Lizard, the five of them. Um, and, uh. It was kind of great for me to read it, too, because, you know, they're all friends of mine. We made the movie Freeloaders together. So these are people I spent a lot of time with and worked with who saved my ass at times on the making of that movie. <laughs> um, they're both re- – and they were really good books, and they're both read by the guys. So Jay's is very funny at times. Joe's is just more just, like, fascinating because he did a lot of great music. The Nick Drake records, Fairport Convention, Sandy Denny. Maria Moldauer, Midnight at the Oasis is him. Um, But he also came up as just a kid in college in America. For all the British music he did, he was an American kid from around here and he put on shows in the summer and like, and then went on tour with like blues shows, took them as their tour manager to Europe. Um, And it's pretty, it's a great book about music. And uh, I thought that Mustache Shenanigans was a great book about performance and comedy and you know, what it's like to, but also independent filmmaking and how you can do all the right stuff and still like, just never get something sold right just like no matter how happy everyone is with it no matter how crazy the audiences go at sundance if the bidding war doesn't happen the right way if harvey weinstein doesn't stay for the showing whatever it just falls apart you know and they're both really interesting books about uh the arts it's Um, amazing anything ever gets made because my my book why has now been optioned three times and since 2000 and Three, it's never seen the light of day. It's 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 just mine's in the very very first step of it, but it's amazing how anyone can make anything and even get it to Sundance. That is a Herculean feat in itself. Well, it's funny. One of the points Jay makes in there is that uh, a lot of the best movies ever made are made from twenty million dollars and below. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in that twenty million, twenty to fifty million dollar 
spot is like a real sweet spot for people that like put a lot of work into movies. They make a movie that's really quality. That has great writing. It has great acting. Uh, but it's nearly impossible to get those made nowadays because it's all foreign sales figures. This this actor and that actor are worth this amount of money. We gotta make this amount of money in order to put that in. Then we need to make this amount of money, which is even larger. You know that like they're much more comfortable. Their jobs are much safer making $100 million movies that they can justify because they put these three stars in it yep. who automatically translate to this much foreign money. That's safer for them than a $20 million movie, even though, that you know, where you could lose your shirt because it doesn't have a lot of those things. It's just a really well-made movie, but, you know, you can lose your job over a $20 million movie maybe a lot easier than you can over a $100 million movie because the $100 million movie is money you spent specifically justifying spending money to make money whether it works or not you know you're not going to get fired for that as much as you know it's an interesting point he makes and it it, it means you can st- get stuck in an endless cycle like uh, you know it just makes more sense to make superhero movies now marvel does them really well and it's a great thing they make them not everyone else does them really well and they're kind of like just these behemoths that weigh down studios um okay that's way off the subject let me get back as I've said many times here before, we welcome the digression. Right, right. I was going uh, you know, to say, I was going to bring it back by saying um, it's. it reminds me of the fact that when it becomes, this is the whole punk aesthetic, when it becomes, when the music business or the film business becomes about just making money, or ju- which is fine, but I'm saying just about where the demographics are and everything, you lose sight of what how people organically from the streets or the roots up get interested in something. We've talked about this a million times. Let me, let, let me before we go off on another digression, let me bring it back in an even simpler way. Go ahead. I can sum this up in the simplest way possible. In Do an it. era when movies have become way overpriced, incredibly expensive to make, and bloated, where do you find a lot of the great entertainment? Television. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with that in mind, let's go back. Because we're talking about Richard Hell in a lot of ways. And Richard Hell... Uh, my, hurt, my, wait, my neck hurts from that segue, yeah. but it's a fantastic Richard one. Hell, who formed the Voidoids, but before that he had been in... The Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunder and uh, left that band because it wasn't his thing. But even before that, he formed television with Tom Verlaine and and Richard Lloyd. Uh, you know, and he, he was long gone from that band before they right. recorded. It anything. became Verlaine's thing. Yeah, yeah. But um, and they're the first he, band. Also, to play you know, I think that television was much more interested in playing music a certain way and. And Richard Hell really wanted to jump around a lot, and 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 I think at one point they got into a fight where Tom Verlaine said, "Stop jumping around on stage so much, you're fucking up the groove." Mm-hmm. And uh, you know there were fights over that, that, the different views of what the punk music they wanted to make would be like, because television's brand of punk is very very different from the Heartbreakers. It's very very different from uh, the Voidoids. It's pretty much pretty different from everything. Um, it really is. Although uh, Tom Verlaine plays on Patti Smith's first singles, I, I really love television. I, I know that it may seem unpunk to a lot of people, but what they're doing is revolutionary. Um, it's it's more of an instrumental thing, but it is also a lyrical thing that's pretty intense. And again, closer to the Patti Smith realm of lyrics than the other stuff. Uh but the instrumental stuff is groundbreaking and unlike anything that you've heard before that there's some stuff in the Perubu stuff we listen to that's kind of similar in some ways. But the interaction between the guitars, the amount to which they 
we talked about this with George Harrison at one point, um, or we will talk about this with George Harrison at one point, that he came up with a way of playing slide guitar that's different from anyone else because he divorces it completely from the blues, which is at the soul of everyone else in the world's slide guitar playing. He's just playing slide guitar with this Beatles melodic sense. Well, like, television takes the whole guitar and the whole sense of how rock and roll works out of the sort of, like, swing and groove. Because rock and roll grew up out of, like, jazz and specifically the swing part of jazz, the Count Basie swing, you know. That sort of turnaround is a big part of early rock and roll. And it's really where rock and roll comes from in a lot of ways. And You know, that swing. And sure. they take it out of that and make it this very, just divorced from all that. That groove isn't the same to them as it is to everyone else. And as a result, they make these almost classical pieces that are, but they're not classical. They're disturbing and intense and like, but the the interaction of the two guitar players, uh, Tom Verlaine and Richard Lloyd is, is stunning to me. And, and, uh, you know, they managed to talk Hilly Crystal into letting them play at CBGB's too, and people freak out. And I think their music is in a lot of ways responsible for some of the more angular stuff that comes along later with Talking Heads or Gang of Four, bands that are employing this sort of like angular funk almost in a way, but stuff that's uh, a little more distanced. Um, I think they're coming from television, and what they're doing is just as intense as like cream or Jimi hendrix in the long instrumental sections which uh you know at an era when nobody wants to hear that shit the same people that are punk- packing those punk clubs to hear the ramones are packing them to hear television however they're doing it works for all those people too you know and because it's you know it's fresh and different and um it's as much a revolution as the other stuff is Let's um, we should just play something. Let's, yeah. let's just play. Uh, let's play. See no evil. It's the first song on their first album, Marquee Moon, uh, and it kind of violates the stuff I just said because it does have a kind of groove thing going on in it. Um, but you know, it's a go great ahead song, television. Man. Fuck me up and prove me wrong. And when I <laughs> all the sort of thesis I just laid out, this is television. 1977's Marquee Moon. This is See uh, No Evil. <laughs> Oh, 
I love that song. I love how a lot of the stuff on this record is so nihilistic in a way. It's about like, it's got this undercurrent of just burning down the world around them, you know, uh, which maybe is why it fits in so well with the punk aesthetic in some ways, because there's a a real visceral frustration and anger with life in the lyrics, you know, like, I understand all destructive urges, but it seems so perfect. I see, I see no evil. You know, like, and then the end of the song, he's got this series of lines where it just seems like I'm running wild with the one I love. I'm running crazy with the one I love while the band sings. I see no evil in the background each time. I keep on dancing with the one I love, all of which seems like, yeah, we're just kind of crazy and party. And then it says you control the feelings of the one you love. I see no evil. You control the feelings of the one you love. You can feed the fires of the one you love. You combine fusion with the one you love. Pull down the future with the one you love. You pull down the future with the one you love. You pull down the future with the one you love. You know, like, it starts to be about, like, just kind of we're going crazy together. Then it becomes about controlling someone in a way. And then it's like, pull down the future with the one you love. We'll just destroy the world. You know, I mean... It's got this live for the moment, like the whole earth's on fire thing that is just pretty cool to me. Yeah. And it's lyrically. It, and it, uh, again, presages the, the ultimate punk duo that went up in a blaze of glory, uh, Sid and Nancy in the way that, you know, they had this pack, this suicide pack, this us against the world. Oh, the world won't accept us. Let's just go down and just destroy any essence of future and leave a good looking corpse kind of thing. So television was very, very nihilistic. I think more so than they were. And I think one of the reasons why they weren't more popular is because they went with whatever direction they want. They didn't try to please or anything or, or attach themselves to the punk movement. As you said, they broke off from that. They were a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But those people who went to CBGBs, the people that you mentioned earlier that packed the place um, just as much for them as they did for the Ramones, understood where they were coming from. It's just it didn't translate, I think, into the long term. It translated with the critics. It translated with people who really dug punk. I thought television should have been bigger and gone on longer, but it was not to be. No, I would say television is closer to the Velvet Underground's big star vibe, whereas that they're, they're immensely influential, influential sure. yep. as a band. You know, there's there's no way you get bands like the Pixies later or uh, Nirvana. A lot of those kind of things without the stuff that's going on in television. You know, I that's, agree. They're very big influence on all that stuff. Um, and he has this great kind of lyrical quality that mixes sort of French romanticism, like Rambo, that sort of idea. Or the other Verlaine. Fantastical, yeah, or the other Verlaine. um, (laughs) With this sort of downtown New York imagery. This very, very urban uh, city on fire kind of thing. He was very influential on, on, uh, and was a lover of Patti Smith and um, uh, artistically and physically. And was very influential on, on Patti Smith. Not only getting into the music business and getting away from the poetry, but, but, but having faith in, in combining those two things without feeling embarrassed about it. And their first album cover, also taken by Maplethorpe? Correct. He took, he, uh, apparently right. he took the, uh, you look at the cover, which is a picture of the four of them, and it's kind of, there's something a little fucked up about the picture. He went down to like, I don't think they had, they obviously didn't have Kinko's then, but he went down to a neighborhood copy shop or something, and he was printing out different color copies, trying to make like a Warholian Campbell soup thing with the different colors Correct. of the, you know, and he was making a series of things with this and looked at one of them and thought, oh, I like that more than the photo. We'll use that. And that's <laughs> what's on the cover of that record right. of Marquee Moon. Yes. You know, just that image, Marquee Moon, you know, it's like this, the romantic image of the moon, but the the urban image of the marquee, you know, the theater, the, the, the theater storefront, you know. Uh, that song, I mean... 
epic in a lot of ways not just in like it's 10 minutes long and it's a brilliant like guitar manifesto in a lot of ways uh, and closer to what you were saying before you yeah in that it's more straight on the the time on it and the the feel of it Uh, and they still manage to reach this epic peak thing you know Uh, it's no surprise to me that it's Immer who gave me this record when we were kids you know that's who introduced me to television was was David you know and because this record flipped him out. This an adventure. Um, I think he gave me a cassette with Marquee Moon on one side and Adventure on the other side, the second album. Uh, but that song, you know, which has like each of them does solos in it, uh, and the the Verlaine solo lasts most of the second half of the song as a whole. But it's got this whole sort of apocalyptic. I don't want to say the world is ending because it's more like. The world is going nowhere. My life is going nowhere. Nothing is actually happening. You know, the lyric in it is, uh, I remember how the darkness doubled. I recall lightning struck itself. I was listening, listening to the rain. I was hearing, hearing something else, though. Life in the hive puckered up my night. A kiss of death, the embrace of life. While I stand there neath the marquee moon, just waiting. And then uh, I spoke to a man down at the tracks. And I asked him how he don't go mad. He said, look here, Junior, don't you be so happy. And for heaven's sake, don't you be so sad. Life in the hive puckered up my night, a kiss of death, the embrace of life. Well, there I stand neath the marquee moon, hesitating. You know, and then, well, the Cadillac, it pulled out of the graveyard, pulled up to me. All they said, get in, get in. Then the Cadillac, it puttered back into the graveyard. Me, I got out again. Life in the hive puckered up my night, a kiss of death, the embrace of life. Over there I stand neath the marquee moon. I ain't waiting. Uh-uh. That, just that whole, like, then the Cadillac had puttered back into the graveyard, and me, I got out again. It starts off like one of, like, it's going to be Roadrunner. You know, we're going to get in this car and get the fuck out of here. Right, right. They said, get in the car, and we got in the car. They turned around and went back into the graveyard. And even the way they, they pull out, but they putter back in. You know, it's just like nothing. It goes nowhere. Nothing is going anywhere, and he comes back to the end. I remember how the darkness doubled. I recall lightning struck itself. I was listening, listening to the rain. I was hearing, hearing something else. Right. It's just nothing is happening. Nothing is moving. All these destructive acts, the car pulling out to go on the road. I remember lightning struck itself, so what's the point? Lightning this incredibly destructive thing, but it's not striking anything. It's just Plus, striking itself. you know, it's the like, limousine it denotes, the, you know, the hearse and the graveyard is, is pretty much burying the lead. But yeah, yeah. the idea of death as stasis, of going nowhere, uh, that also reminds me, as I like to say, of springsteen's work from the early 70s where he talks about the car's escape but also being stuck in places when i first heard dancing in the dark which is a big pop hit but it was originally written during the nebraska period yeah. and he and 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 if you listen to the acoustic version of that song it's in minor key and it's very sad it's about a person literally going nowhere cannot get out of his room no matter what he does he can't get out of that headspace you know he's writing his own obituary while he's sitting there literally and that's what this song always reminded me of. I was reminded of that kind of stuff. And, of course, later on, uh, Patti Smith covered a Springsteen song and added her own take to it. This idea of the escape from banality is a different kind of escape. This escape from, I don't have anywhere to go. It's, 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 a, it's a sense of living suicide, in a way. But he, you know, he's very careful not to call it a limo and not to call it a hearse. He calls it a Cadillac, that Cadillac. kind of car you get in to go places. Right. But he just doesn't go anywhere, or he thinks he's going, and they just turn around and drive him right back inside, and they barely make it back in. They putter back in. It's you know, a it's, tease, yeah. 
It is. And it is an epic. And it is what separates television from anything that you'll hear on these four podcasts. Yeah, I mean, it's... We gotta play it, because it's... Sit back. Just sit back and relax. Get yourself a cup of coffee. But it's (laughs) fucking... It's just fucking genius. This is the title song. And by the way, I should also add, this is one take. This is recorded the first time they played it in the studio. It doesn't surprise me, though. A lot of their record was recorded live, but not necessarily in one take. This one... They happen to have the tape running. They played it. Uh, the guy that recorded it, something Johns, I can't remember his name. Uh, he thought it was just a rehearsal when they were done with it. And he said, you should play it again. And Verlaine said, fuck no, forget <laughs> it. And they just kept it. This is, this is a single take the first time they played it in the studio. Yeah, this is Marky Moon.
You know, one thing I've, I've thought about just now, and I want to ask you a question as a vocalist. I've noticed a, an evolution. It's kind of like when you binge on a TV show and you watch like 20 in a row. You start to notice things that you might not have noticed if they're on every week. And I've noticed playing these songs back to back to back to back, and we're recording some of these podcasts back to back to back that'll play over a couple of weeks, is that I've noticed we started off with sort of the punk style of singing coming from Lou Reed, which is sort of this detached apathy, anarchic, anarchic kind of a... Then it goes to like this balls-out, pissed, angry, same kind of level of like Iggy Pop and that kind of stuff. And now this reminds me of sort of the nerdy, kind of bitchy thing that you get with the Dead Milkmen or the Violent Femmes, you know, that vocal of... You know, like there's something like... I don't know if that's there's a natural progression that went to that, but have you noticed that in the vocal? The vocals have really taken on, I think, over the years from 1967, 68, 70 to this. They're, they're still in the same area, but they're completely different, coming from a different angle. Yeah, they go a lot of different ways. And, and it opened, but a lot of the songs we've played open up a lot of different ways to sing, too. You know, like uh, what I get from television is the thing that they took down from the Velvet. So it doesn't show up on a lot of the Velvet albums. Some of them it does. Long instrumental passages. One of the things they got from the Velvets is that you can play these disaffected songs and it's kind of punky, but you can also have, you can get lost in this music like too. Like Venus and Furs. Or heroin off the first record. Yeah, they played long, long instrumental passages in the Velvet Underground, and television gets into that part of it too. They and they're incredible. Well, you mentioned Marky Moon, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we talked a little earlier. You know, the uh, the Sex Pistols had signed to EMI. They released in the fall of '76. They released uh, Anarchy in the UK by January of '77. They were off EMI, kicked off the label. Uh, they signed to AM, A&M on March 10th, and they were kicked off that late. In, in March 10th of 1977, they signed to A&M Records. They were kicked off that by March 16th, six days later. Um, they had already pressed up 25,000 copies of the next single, which was God Save the Queen. They were mostly all destroyed. Um, they had signed with Virgin in May, a month, or, a month or two later, and they finally did release the album, Never Mind the Bollocks, that fall. Right. And the uh, record... Uh, God Save the Queen. Uh, Which was a scandal, to say the least. But, uh, um, go oh ahead, yeah. please. Uh, I'm looking up the lyrics because it is one of the most, especially in England, sacrilegious thing. The whole thing, the, the poster they had with the bar over her eyes and ripped up Union Jack. Even John Lennon famously said when, when, when the Beatles played for the, the Royal Command, uh, those of you in the, in the balcony, shake your jewelry, and that was a little bit of something there. But this is a whole – or when he returned the MBE when, uh, during you – know, because he was protesting um, England's uh, assistance of America in Vietnam. But this, to me uh, – and I'm not an Englishman, and we talked about Robin Hitchcock and his English sensibilities uh, and Queen Elvis, but this – Song and everything about it is some of the most spiteful, <laughs> in your face. It's the Sex Pistols to the end of the degree, and really destroyed them in England for all intents and purposes. The timing of this, 1977, was also the year of Queen Elizabeth's Silver Jubilee. 
Okay, so, and it's the same year, and they timed the release of the single when they finally did release it to come out within, like, days of the Silver, during the Silver Jubilee uh, celebrations, I think. Didn't they play in a barge going down the Thames? I I don't know, I don't know, but they sold, you know, the, the whole promotion behind God Save the Queen was timed to happen during the the peak of the Silver Jubilee celebrations, by the time the record came out, they pre-sold like 200,000 copies of the single um, by the time the Jubilee happened, I think. Uh, you know, they were nothing in their organization if not cunning strategizers. Oh, no you know? question. No, Probably the most cunning. But- I mean, they strategized themselves right out of being a band. <laughs> but but for, for, for all the things we remember them for that they did accomplish happened anyways and then it, it's like the the thing that eats the snake that eats itself because right. it's feeding so on the fuel of itself and it eventually just you know well it just just if we're closing with this i must recite uh god save the queen the fascist regime they made you a moron a potential h-bomb god save the queen she's not a human being <laughs> and there's no future and england's dreaming which is really great lyrics. Is it There's No Future and England's Dreaming or There's No Future in England's Dreaming? And England's oh. Dreaming. I always thought it was There's No Future in England's Dreaming. Who the hell knows the, what the he's saying? The dream is over. I'm you sure know. these are not even the right. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Who the hell knows what he's spatting out in vicious anger? I gotta say, I love the lyric, There's No Future in England's Dreaming. Yes. Of all the things he says in there, the apocalypse of, and w- which is what they're trying to say too, is that in, it's Thatcher's England at that point. And it is, it is, for a lot of working class people, a truly grim place that seems to not give a shit about them. We're flowers. That's a real concern. We're flowers in the dustbin with the poison in your human machine. And this is, a, this is where punk becomes political for the first time since MC5 in Detroit. This is the first time where punk is clearly making a statement about social issues and there was a whole generation and we're going to play uh, in the next podcast we'll discuss the clash and white riot this whole lower class white completely forgotten lower middle class post World War II generation that were given nothing prior to them before the hippie movement it was you don't get anything we, we lived in the, in the tubes while the Germans bombed us for 10 months. We lived on rations. You don't get to say this stuff. And then what the whole hippie movement did and the Carnaby Street and the Summer of Love and the Beatles was, hey, it's cool now. We survived this. England won. We're great. We're superhuman, man. And then nobody got anything out of that. It, the bottom dropped out, and this generation got fucked. And this Not just is in England. That's saying. kind of the point of a lot of things we're talking about in America. In New too, York City, that like you know, Detroit. The summer of love didn't turn out all that well for everybody. That there, you know, we hoped it was going to turn, but you know, the summer of love ends and they're dying by the thousands in Vietnam. Poverty is crazy. Drugs in America are killing people. Kennedy's being shot. Kennedy's been shot. Martin Luther King's, King's been King shot. Was murdered on a balcony. Bobby Kennedy's been shot, and it's just Nixon. And over there, a little while later, it's Thatcher. And it just doesn't seem all that bright a future to You get up in the morning, you walk outside, and you just see boarded-up buildings and spray-painted walls and swastika symbols and kids beating the shit out of each other in the street and children don't have any shoes on their feet. This was England in the 70s. This is New York City in the 70s. The Bronx is burning. Entire neighborhoods are gone. Detroit is destroyed. Manufacturing's already start. You know, we see Son the- of Sam is killing people in New York at the same time too. And they can't All keep the year. lights on. Yes, there's a blackout, and 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 a guy is going around killing people, and no one can figure out who he is. 
Yep. And then the Yankees are winning, but they're fighting a lot. Yeah. And, <laughs> Yankees are winning, and they're beating the shit out of each other on national television in a dugout in, in Fenway Park. But anyway, we should end it we with should, this because this again. is a great, great song. Just just to bring it back up again, too, you got to remember, the Pitstals get signed by EMI by January of 77. They're off the label. In March 10th, they sign with... A&M, March 16th, they've off that label after having gone to visit the people at A&M and destroyed the label. Um, Outpunk that motherfucker. And in March, they sign again, <laughs> or May, they sign with, uh, with Virgin, and to time with the Super Silver Jubilee, they release God Save the Queen. We gotta get out of here, but we'll be back next week. The Clash goes from opening for the Pistols in a few months to March of 77, to releasing their first album. And being the only band that matters. That's yeah, in the whole trip. world. The, the real, the greatest band of all of punk. Uh, but let's end this one right now. God save the queen. All right. Take care. See Underwater ya. Sunshine. Peace. Peace.